Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Our focus today is on the economic impact of the Russian war on Ukraine, and we'll also be discussing today's inflation report, Congress's incredibly hodgepodge budget process, and the Biden administration's recently released next phase COVID-19 strategy. Joining us to discuss all of this is the one and only Douglas Holtzigan. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. Happy to be here. <laughs> all right, let's jump right into things um, and start with the this morning's monthly inflation report. What did we learn from this? Well, if you thought uh, inflation might be uh, a thing of the past and somehow dissipating, uh, wrong. Uh, we saw the top line year-over-year inflation number go from 7.5 to 7.9% in the most recent report. If you strip out food and energy to get so-called core inflation, it, it rose from uh, 6 to 6.4%. So we have, you know, the increasing inflation again. And my favorite uh, collection of numbers is what, what does it cost for food, energy, and shelter, which is over 50% of the budget? That's rising at an annual rate of 8.4%. Interesting. Um, how's the situation in Ukraine and the sanction imposed on Russia impacted the U.S. economy, and in particular inflation to date? Well, it didn't show up in this report. Again, this is a piece of economic history at some level, but uh, it makes it easy for me to foresee getting over 9% uh, in the next month or two as we see the impact of the invasion, the sanctions, and in particular, the, the impact on world oil and commodity markets. Uh, I think people forget that the combination of uh, Russia and Ukraine is more important in world wheat markets than it is in oil markets. So we're gonna see agricultural prices and quantity prices in general being pushed up by this conflict. So a month from now, it sounds like we're gonna be probably seeing this um, in the data. What about six months from now? What should we be looking at coming down the road? So I, I see no particular reason for anyone to think that inflation is going to go quickly back down to, say, the Fed's target of 2%. That's just not on the cards. Uh, the Fed is expected at its next meeting, 15th and 16th of March, to begin the process of raising interest rates. Chairman Powell flagged very clearly in his testimonies that, uh, recently that this could be a 25 basis point increase. That's essentially nothing. Right now we have zero um, interest rates and inflation running at basically 8%. So we have negative real interest rates. That's not exactly leaning against the wind. So moving that to like 25 basis points won't mean much. So you can just see from those numbers, the Fed has a long way to go. So they're going to steadily be raising rates through this year. There will be an important decision they'll have to make of whether they continue to raise rates during the fall stretch run of the campaign season. They traditionally have tried to avoid that. They don't want to be perceived as weighing in on the election, incumbents versus challengers. So we'll see how they, they handle that. The other thing the Fed will do is shrink the size of its balance sheet. You hear this all the time. They went out and they bought up a bunch of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That, that's not the interesting thing. The interesting thing is the flip side of that transaction is they essentially print cash and push it into the financial services uh, sector. And so out there in financial markets, we have about $4.8 trillion in cash sloshing about that they have pushed in since the, the pandemic started. They're now going to start taking that back. They do that by selling the securities and taking the money back. If you think about a big pile of treasuries, I'm trying to ask Kyle to hold on to 4.8 trillion more treasuries. Kyle's probably going to say, hey, not at zero interest rates. I want something like 4% on those things. So that's another way to effectively raise rates. And I'm going to have both of them going on at the same time. 
that will push against inflation. That, that takes out the demand stimulus. It doesn't do anything to address the supply shocks that come from higher oil prices, higher commodity prices, the kinds of things that the, the conflict uh, in Ukraine will uh, will produce. So some progress will probably be made, but, but I expect a, a pretty big inflation problem in 2023. Well, um, one of the big numbers in that report this morning was, of course, gas and oil. We know that, you know, the situation in Russia affects this this industry a lot. I mean, we just banned uh, the president just said that he was in favor of banning Russian oil imports. Republicans have been calling on the president to ramp up uh, American oil and natural gas production. What do you make of this argument? Well, let's walk through the, the different implications. So, uh, first of all, uh, what do we think about the sanctions regime as a whole? Uh, the good news is uh, they have uh, two, two strategies for dealing with a country when they want to do economic sanctions. One, you can stop uh, specific um, purchases. So don't buy oil, gas, don't buy Russian products, whatever it might be, or stop transactions. You may not make a transaction from a dollar into a ruble. That, that pretty much stops the purchases of Russian goods. So we, we've adopted a little bit of both. We, and um, we have, have a, a real night, tight net around them on the financial transactions front. Uh, and we have left a gaping hole on the purchases of oil and, and natural gas because our European allies simply cannot cut off, especially the natural gas, overnight. Uh, so that's 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 lessened the effectiveness of those sanctions. They will still wreak havoc on the Russian economy. I think there's no question about that. They have generated lots and lots of expectation of a reduced uh, supply of oil, in particular, and, and commodities will follow. So we've seen sharp drop in, jump in oil prices. That's that's generated the usual increase in gasoline prices. And so year over year, gasoline's up 38%. So that's a big chunk of this inflation problem. And, and so we, we see that as, as part of the fallout. For the U.S. to, on top of that, say, we will not buy oil and natural gas, really doesn't mean much. We don't buy a lot of oil and natural gas from uh, Russia. You know, we have some anomalies like Hawaii, where it makes more sense to buy from uh, Asian Russian uh, sellers than than to try to get it from the U.S. It's expensive to transport that way. Um, the Jones Act requires it to be on American flag vessels, and so that's more expensive and all this nonsense. So there's a little bit of, of Russian purchase in the U.S. imports, but we'll get rid of that. It's more symbolic than real in my view. Let's move on to Congress. In Congress's uh, loosely defined budget process, Congress is moving forward on an omnibus spending bill. Uh, the House passed its version, and the Senate is moving to take that up. What is in this thing? Let's start there. Well, there's a whole bunch of words getting tossed about. So there's the, the omnibus. Well, as it turns out that the Congress is supposed to twelve pass 12 appropriations bills each fiscal year, uh, and that should have been done by September 30th of 2021. It wasn't. And since then, we have been operating on these so-called CRs, continuing resolutions, which just say, put everything on autopilot for another, say, four weeks, and then another eight weeks. And we've, we've done this for a while. The omnibus is those 12 bills jammed together uh, and passed in one fell swoop. Uh, the magic of jamming them together makes it a must-pass piece of legislation. That also usually means uh, that the, the omnibus is, is greater than the sum of the 12 original parts. Everything gets put in there. No one knows what's in it. We'll find out as time goes on. So, for example, uh, the House passed the omnibus uh, last night, and I found out this morning they reauthorized in there an immigration program called EB-5 for entrepreneurs. So um, 
you know, all sorts of things will be in there and we'll find out what they are. We've also been talking about supplemental funding for Ukraine relief and also for COVID-19 preparedness planning. Uh, that term doesn't make a lot of sense because supplementals are usually additions to appropriation in law. We don't have any appropriations in law. So these are all just three different spending initiatives. They want to lump them all together and get them done. They, they ran into a, a, a firestorm yesterday because the Democrat rank and file objected to the, the COVID-19 preparedness funding on the grounds that about seven and a half billion of previous aid to state, states and localities would be recouped to help pay for that. And so it got pulled out. The other two, the quote omnibus and the quote supplemental for Ukraine, um, got through the House and are now headed for the Senate. None of this is a, is uh, an exercise in good governance. Uh, we, we all know that. It's a way to keep the government funded for the rest of the year, address some genuine needs in Ukraine. The process is not very pretty. Yeah, you wrote, you mentioned all those budget terms. And I remember back to earlier this week when you wrote that wonderful dish, I will call it, uh, about the budget terms. And it gave me a good laugh on my way into work um, about how we're just using these terms today. And what do they actually mean? The, the other notable part of the omnibus, which AAF's Gordon Gray, who's been on this podcast, is, is, is writing up at the moment, is this marks the return of earmarks to the budget process. Uh, earmarks got banned in both the House and Senate a few years ago. They're now back, so they are. there are formal earmarks in the, uh, the omnibus, and Gordon went through and counted, and, and in the labor and, and HHS section of the bill, uh, there are 150 pages of earmarks. So God only knows what we will find when we finally dig through all that. Stay tuned. Just a reminder, because we, we, some of us haven't been dealing with earmarks in a long time. What These are just programs that basically just get attached into the bills and that directs money to these specific programs, right? These are re formal requests now. I mean, you don't just slip it in. Formal requests by a congressman, senator to earmark a certain amount of funding for a specific purpose. And they because they want some transparency in this process, these earmarks are now in the bill. And we know who requested them and where the money's going, but they are they are not necessarily tied to existing program or, or just raising funding levels. They are they are earmarks to make sure the money goes to a particular place. There's a long history of this earmarks fight that we're not going to re recoup here. But the advocates of earmarks have said they are a good tool for incentives to get appropriations bills done because if your earmarks in there, you want the bill to get done, and so we're more likely to get. Uh, an effective budget process. I'll just note the irony that with their return, they returned in an omnibus with two supplementals and it all fell apart. So it doesn't look like it's absolutely a guarantee. Yeah. What about next fiscal year? Congress, uh, the administration, everyone is dropping budget balls left and right here. We're not getting estimates. We're not getting economic projections, let alone a real budget. And it's an election year. What will this budget year look like? If history is any guide, we'll do a CR. Like one of the reasons to get the uh, omnibus done is to actually have funding levels that this administration has signed off on. So uh, with the CRs, they were still operating off funding levels and priorities that were set by the Trump administration. So now they at least, you know, they control the House, the Senate and the, and the White House. They now at least have funding levels that they set, priorities that they put into into place. And they've done no work on on the fiscal 23 budget. There's been no president's budget, no CBO budget and economic outlook, no budget resolution discussions, nothing. And that's that's become more and more typical in election years that they'll just eventually do a continuing resolution, 
get past the election season and uh, and then pick up the pieces. So um, at some level, we've sort of dropped into doing the budgeting every other year. And this year, it's even worse than that. Interesting. Well, let's end on COVID-19. The Biden administration recently released its national COVID-19 preparedness plan. Seems like a reasonable step towards living with the virus, quote unquote. But there are many, many questions still here, uh, as AAF highlighted this week. Walk us through these issues. So uh, Meg Barnhorst wrote a really nice piece covering this national uh, COVID-19 preparedness plan. And my take on it, which is a a really tiny subset of of what's actually in there, so I encourage you to read the piece as a whole. Better to read her piece than the, the plan, which is 96 pages. So go for the piece. But A, the most important thing I think is you should have a plan. We quickly forget that in 2020, after we got through the first onslaught, we had a wave of infections in in late fall, early winter. Uh, 2021, same thing. And it came with a variant called Omicron that was highly transmissible. There's nothing that rules that out again. Like that's COVID-19 is a virus. And much like the seasonal flu, it's going to have these these peak periods and it's going to continue to mutate. And so there should be some thinking now about what we will do then and how we will address the testing issues and, and the, the need for lockdowns as, as health systems get overwhelmed and, and all of that. So I applaud the idea of doing the plan. Point number two, the bad news, I don't know what the plan is. Even now they put the plan out, I still don't really know because they said they needed $22.5 billion to do this. They had originally asked for 30, that was HHS Secretary uh, Becerra's uh, number. They got 15 in the budget process. And then last night with the revolt, that didn't get done. And administration officials have said they're going to need another $100 billion next year and $15 billion a year thereafter. Well, what's the money for? And we don't know. So I, we don't really know the plan. So you've got a genuine plan when you have elements of a strategy and the money that's going to implement them and you know the scope of it and then the, the, the size. So for example, uh, a, a key part of the new approach to uh, testing and treating is this one stop. You take a test at a CVS or some other uh, location, and if you test positive, they immediately give you antivirals, these um, uh, oral treatments that will minimize the impact of, of COVID-19. It's fantastic, but there are about a million doses available, and there are you know 310 million Americans, and you know how, so. How far does that go? How many? How fast will more come online? And, and that's where the money would dictate some of this. So there are things like that. Um, there's some things in it I think are just unrealistic, mostly because of, of my, my age. I've been around. Um, so after uh, the terrorist attacks in, of September 11, 2001, there were big concerns about biological weapons and, and an effort made to develop these sort of comprehensive, broad-spectrum uh, countermeasures for biologics. It was a hugely ambitious project. It never yielded much that, that that we can see. They're now saying, well, we want to spend the money to develop a single vaccine that will take all variants of uh, the coronavirus. Um, no, that, that's 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 unrealistic, I think. The right way to do it is the way we did it. Identify a specific problem. We had the coronavirus that generated COVID-19. Uh, it was a novel coronavirus, and, and they they took the, the DNA and they developed the vaccines. They did it amazingly quickly. They could probably do it quicker in the future. Let's do that. That makes sense to me. You'll get something that, that actually has a payoff rather than just spend the money. Interesting. 
Well, Doug, thanks for joining us and breaking that all down. I won't keep us any further because I think there might be some cake in the uh, conference room for us to go enjoy uh, with our fellow coworkers. So thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.